0: The Colorado Equals Security Podcast
1: is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Rack and Alex Wood.
2: Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is your newscast for episode 254 for the week of November 6th. Alex, uh, it's remember, remember the 5th of November time.
1: It is. Uh, do you remember?
2: I remember the movie uh, V for Vendetta, which is one of my very favorite movies, and the, uh, uh, the like the monologue where he just says all the the V words. Um, anyway, really good stuff. Natalie Portman is the uh, is one of the stars good of that stuff. movie.
1: I remember November fifth for different reasons. I have some family members with birthdays on the fifth, so there you go. Yeah.
2: Uh, and what's your mother's maiden name? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and I'll just like list out my uh, social security number as well. And and, could, you, uh, uh, could you take a picture of some of and
2: and and scratch off the thing on the back and send a yeah. picture? Yeah, we'll do.
1: Um, hey,
2: uh, before we jump into the news, uh, just as a reminder, we have a Slack channel where we'd love to get you guys connected. Go out to colorado-security.com and click the Slack button to, to get in. And while you're there, go to the bottom of the screen and, and join our newsletter where you'll get things such as. Our, our newsletter um, each month and also any kind of announcements coming up, like like the recent, uh, well, today, the yeah. charity event we did.
1: Yeah, it was a great turnout at the charity event. Uh, also, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast player. We'd love for you to do that. Also, tell a friend about Colorado Equal Security, whether it's the podcast or the movement or... The Slack workspace or any of the events that we're having, all of Did that. You stuff. the new
2: promotion. Um, everyone who gets uh, a new subscriber gets one free month of the podcast.
1: Hey, I and, forgot and to it, tell and that them does that. does stack. That does stack. You yes. can,
2: uh, you know, if you get us ten new the, people, you get ten free
1: months. The, there's no limit on the amount of free months that you can get. Uh, finally, if you would like to have a not free month, you can join our Patreon campaign uh, and help support the uh, the movement financially. We use that money to. Uh, pay for hosting and you know all the other things that go along with Colorado Social Security and fun things fund things like uh, the picnic and other the stuff and like that the charity stuff we did stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although this one was actually taken care of a big shout out to Voodoo Donuts who
2: supplied some donuts for our yeah. for our, our volunteers today and, and we were planning to pay and, and we didn't have to. So thanks to that and big thanks to Ben Fellows and Chris Abbey and, and Doug Brush who helped put the whole thing together. Yeah, let's jump into the news. All right. Hey, we have a story here about a, a recent uh, re- bit of research that was done by a real estate company called Zonda. They were looking at what is the average, or sorry, the medium home price in, uh, in, in different cities around
1: the, around the country. And Alex, what did they find? They found that Colorado has the four most expensive housing markets in the U.S., not on a coast. Which we don't know exactly what not on a coast right. means, but you know, assuming that you're just kind of knocking off whole states, still
2: kind of amazing, right? Uh the the top of the list, no surprise to us, is Boulder. Yep. Um going down we got Denver, Fort Collins, and then this was the shocker to me, the fourth most expensive city in the country that's not on the coast. Greeley. Greeley. Yeah. yeah. I thought that that was one of the more affordable places in the state.
1: Yeah. Part of what they said here was that uh, as places like Denver and Boulder and Fort Collins have gotten more expensive, people have looked for cheaper places. And that sounds like it's been Greeley.
2: Yeah. I'm, I would have been less surprised if it's in Colorado Springs. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't have that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I know. Boulder is known for being an expensive place. I was surprised at exactly how expensive it is, though. The median home price in Boulder is $833,000, which is more than two or about $200,000 more than the second highest at Denver. So call it, you know, a
1: third more expensive than any other
2: city in the country. Uh, To me, that was pretty surprising.
1: Yeah. uh, One of the other things that I noted was uh, in 1980, uh, because they also did this, uh, the same investigation for different time periods. In 1980, no non coastal market had a median price, median home price above $100,000. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. We, and, and now we have yeah. you know six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars median home prices. Yeah.
2: and they say if you know if, if prices had moved at the same rate as inflation, you know Boulder should be somewhere in like the four or five hundred thousand yeah. uh, dollars.
1: Yeah, yeah, for a hundred thousand dollar home back in nineteen eighty, the equivalent today would be three hundred and ninety thousand. Yeah, so
2: obviously the appreciation in real estate has been very significant. Um, not as much as the appreciated in the stock market, if you're trying to, to do the math, but really interesting. And it's, I guess, kind of a good news, bad news situation. It's nice to know that a lot of folks want to live where we are. Not a great time to have to buy a house in Colorado. Though. Yeah,
1: if you're somebody that's been here a long time and has owned a house for a while, then uh, you are on the plus side. If you're somebody that's trying to move to, to Denver, not so much. You might want to move to Oklahoma. Yes. All right. Uh, next up, we have a, a story talking about why Denver... Uh, ten reasons why Denver is a bastion of geekdom. Yeah, this is a you know kind of a fun one. So, Alex, you know, since we've moved from weekly to monthly with the
2: podcast, one of the things I've really appreciated is that we get a whole lot more interesting news each month. And this is this month is a good example of not having a lot more interesting news. <laughs> so, so as an exception, we you know I think Westward realized there wasn't a lot going on this month, and they wrote up this story basically saying, "Hey, you know, we we got the tech hub for." Um, for quantum coming, uh, what other kind of geeky things does Denver have? And and the answer is apparently we've got a lot of geeky things in Colorado.
1: Yeah, uh, lots of good things on this list. Um, the first thing they talk about is a history of supporting nerd culture, um, which you know I was a little disappointed. I'm going to sidebar here for a second. I was a little disappointed in the story that they sort of uh, conflated nerds and geeks (laughs) and all of the the different terms, that they are different things. They are different. And uh, in in this case, they're kind of putting them all together as part of the story, but but nonetheless... Nerds, um,
2: geeks, dweebs, whoever you are, you're welcome here.
1: Exactly. Um, Anyway, back in uh, 1999, the very first Star Wars celebration was uh, held here. Yeah, and they they have some nice pictures of that. Uh, The second kind of evidence
2: that we are a, a geek city is our... Our comic, our con scene. So we all know that you know Comic Con's been here for years, and now renamed as Fan Expo Con. There's Genghis Con. There's this Star Star Fest. There's a bunch of different cons that happen here in Denver.
1: Yeah. Um, the the next thing they looked at was a little bit around uh, jobs and working. Over five percent of Denver work the Denver workforce is employed in quote gaming. So that that seems like a pretty high number. Yeah, and there's an awful lot
2: of uh, of tech jobs here as well. Uh, Next one they had was around comic books. They called it a Camelot for comic collectors. We have Mile High Comics, which apparently um, is the number one comic book store in the country and well-known for comic book collectors. And it's just here in Denver on like I-70.
1: Yeah, also um, Geeks Who Drink, which uh, if you've ever been at a bar on a a weeknight, you'll possibly run across that. Uh, was started here in Denver and is now nationwide. So I, I have done a, a round I, or two of Geek To Drink. I have life. as well. I, I don't think I realized that it started here, but that's I pretty cool. I didn't
2: know it either. Um, the, so then, you know, the next one, it was going to kind of go into our next story or on quantum tech. Why don't we leave that one for yep. now? Uh, after that, we have two uh, amusement parks. You know, not a lot of cities have two amusement parks in them. Obviously, Elitch Gardens and the what hun- 100 plus year old Lakeside. Um, although, I didn't realize it, but apparently the Cyclone um, has been closed this last summer. Yeah. So that the, the oldest original wood roller coaster in, in Colorado has not been open.
1: Yeah. Also, uh, Colorado, of course, the birthplace of South Park. Uh, you know, very geeky there. And the, the last one, I'm not I'm not sure exactly how I... Yeah, two more. Or two more, sorry. The, the next one was was about Red Rocks. I'm not sure exactly how that ties into this. Yeah, they're reaching. To this. They're, uh, they're, they're reaching mean, a bit. If
2: you're a music geek... And and then finally, I I do think the last one is legitimate though, that we have the geekiest governor, Jared, Jared Polis. Uh, I don't know if you you watched his state of the state where he did his yoga, sorry, his Yoda quote and um, Lord of the Rings references like, yeah, he's a, he's a pretty good nerd.
1: Yeah. He's hardcore. Yeah, He's He's one of us. Yeah, for sure. All
2: right. right. Anyway, that's, that's kind of the fun story for the month. Um, Jumping forward, you know as we just alluded to in the last one, this is actually some pretty big news. Um, Colorado has officially been designated as a national tech hub. Um and, and they, they were doing this in different um different technology areas. Well we got the tech hub designation for quantum technology.
1: Yeah, I know that there was the push to have us designated in a few areas and this is the one that won out.
2: Yeah. So we, we had looked at maybe security. I think that somewhere along the way they kinda of dropped off they, Colorado stopped pushing for a couple of them. But quantum, you know, as we're looking at quantum computing and and what does that next iteration of, of the computing paradigm look like? Um, they they did a good job of, uh, of of advocating for Colorado as the spot to do it. Now, interestingly enough, on this topic, I was listening to the Colorado Sun morning podcast. It's called the Colorado Sun Up. I recommend it if you guys want some local news. Tamara Chung, a friend of ours, reporter for the Colorado Sun, was on there trying to describe the impact of this. And listening to her try to describe quantum um, encouraged me not to bother to try. (laughs) So I will say I cannot describe to you how quantum computers work differently than traditional processing other than to say it's really Uh, bad for uh, secrets that are in uh, traditional encryption.
1: Qubits. That's my contribution. Qubits. Thank you. Is
2: that like the, the biblical like measurement two, two cubits long, whatever? Yes. Thank you for that.
1: Uh, Anyway. uh, So as you know, so what does this mean being designated a hub? Basically, it means access to, to funding, right? Like you're designated this way. The The government um, is putting aside $10 billion. Initially, $500 million is available. We don't know exactly what that means or how it's available, but, you know, I assume that's for attracting companies, you know, helping companies in whatever area that it is uh, that, that you're designated for. But, I mean, $10 billion is nothing to sneeze at across all of these tech hubs. And, and I, well,
2: one of the things I heard was that the government recognized you know, Silicon Valley as a hub for technology was great, but having all of our, all of our technical smarts in one place was not so great. So they were looking to see what can they do to encourage building those similar types of hubs in different parts around the country. Obviously Silicon Valley is going to continue to be, you know, a powerhouse in technology, but you know, as Denver spins up and as you know, Boston and Charlotte and Seattle as spin up as big tech hubs, you know, it adds more,
1: um, more resiliency to our economy and to our technology. Yeah. Speaking of uh, tech, our next story uh, is sort of about uh, Excel Energy, but also sort of about the data center provider uh, QTS. They're building a brand new data center. Uh, It says it's C-470, but I'm pretty sure they mean E-470 and I-70. Because it says it's in Aurora. Aurora. Um, C470 and I 70 don't meet in Aurora for those that, that are trying to keep score here. Um, anyway, this is going to be a, a gigantic data center and it's going to end up being one of Excel's biggest customers for electricity. Yeah. I, I, I found this interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think I realized
2: it, ex, And you know, Excel is a private company, but it, it, it gets a monopoly in, in the space right. because of the oversight it gets from the government and some visibility the government gets it. Excel can't choose to increase its rate. It has to get approval to increase rates. So everything they do around pricing is 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 pretty well researched and, you know, diligenced. So this this story is really about the fact that Excel wants to get some really steep discounts to this data center to, to move into town. And as a part of that request to do so, we get a lot of visibility into the fact that this is going to be their biggest customer, you know, surpassing... Um, oh, what's the name of that cement company over there? Like at, at the base of twenty five in the mountains, and yes. um, a couple um, other, couple of those types of like big manufacturing companies.
1: Yeah, uh, they did say that previously, uh, a uh, Evraz. I don't know how to pronounce Evraz. Rocky Mountain Steel and Pueblo was the the biggest uh, individual customer for Excel and uh, and this the QTS uh, can take over as that with the amount of electricity they're going to be using in yeah. this data center and this
2: isn't even QTS's largest data center in the country no they they talk, I, don't, I don't know QTS but as as we as i read through the article they are owned by blackstone um, and they, they they it looks to me from like the way they drop hints that they service like the big telcos the big web Properties, you know, your Facebooks and so forth. I'm just guessing from the way this is written um, that they're serving those companies, and and the the processing power they need is is way more than you get from your traditional data centers that you and I have probably toured multiple times.
1: Yeah, uh, this I believe is going to be uh, QTS's third largest uh, data center. The biggest one is in Arizona, and the uh, the second biggest one was uh, now I lost it, but. Oh, in Atlanta. Sorry. Yeah. So, anyway, so it's going to be a big, big stuff. a big, a big
2: development out there, kind of on the way to Dia. If you're, if you're coming from Denver, um, looking forward to to seeing the news on that. Good stuff. All right, we have some uh, an update from one of the tech companies. We've talked a lot about Guild Education. I, they're not called Guild Education anymore. Now they're, they're just, just called, called Guild. Guild. Um, but we've talked about them quite a bit in the past. The head the headline here in this uh, story is. Uh, Denver area tech unicorn Guild just made a big investment in AI education. So I was expecting to read a story that said they put 50 million into something.
1: Right. It's not exactly what it looks like here. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think that they're just they're going to be offering AI education as part of their programs. Yeah, and, and
2: for those who don't know, what Guild does is they 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 they're a benefit that employers can offer to their employees to help them do continuing education kind of while they work. So they've partnered with McDonald's and Walmart and some other big companies. So if you work there and you want to move in, you know, you're a cashier and you want to move into IT, Guild has a, a set of courses that can help you get ready for that. Um, and they just added now a new program around AI and how do you do data science? How do you, how do you utilize AI? So they're going to be upskilling the employees at these different companies to, uh,
1: um, to be able to do AI. Yeah, it's just sort of a a different method than uh, sort of the traditional, you know, tuition assistance where you're sending somebody back to college or to college for something. Um, You know, it it can be a uh, a smaller bite sized pieces as a benefit and also um, maybe not with the same sort of prerequisites you might need to uh, to take a full college degree kind of course. Yep. Good stuff. What do we got next? Uh, Next, uh, we have a story from the National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, they held a, a training and a kickoff for uh, some Project Pisces stuff.
2: Yeah, we've talked about Pisces on here before, I think not that long ago. Uh, this is the, the, the open source product tool that uh, is developed with uh, kind of a combination of Metro State and some other organizations and Richard McNamee, who we actually have on the show next month. Um, is, is one of the guys running this and is quoted in this article. Um, Alex, what is the, what is the impact here? What is Pisces doing?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so Metro state has been working uh, with the Pisces program uh, pretty regularly. The NCC got involved and sort of pulled in a couple other Colorado Springs area schools uh, to get involved with Pisces as well. So this was kind of the, the kickoff I think, and uh, discussion around uh, those uh, schools down in Colorado sp- spring, Springs joining the network and now having more people available to do the, the free monitoring that Pisces does for uh, government institutions that can't afford it on their own.
2: Yeah, I feel like the model here is is just so good and something that needs to be replicated, you know, a hundred times over. Basically, as a part of education, they have created a a, a security operation center that mo- can monitor like municipalities and other government or, you know, public sector uh, entities that don't have the funding to, to do their own SOC and can't afford to outsource, um, the, they have the, the students as the ones running the SOC. Now, hey, you, may, you know, they're not going to be professional yet. They're still learning as they go. But my goodness, it's a lot better than nothing, right? better than nothing. And, and, and the students get real world experience looking through these tools, looking for bad behavior, trying to combat that behavior, I imagine. And the the companies get, you know, free protection. I think it's a really cool model, and and I'd love to see other other folks embrace that.
1: Yeah, I know uh, many people complain about students coming out of higher education programs for cybersecurity about not having real-world experience, right? You've learned all this stuff in books, but you don't really know how to do anything. Uh, The the people in these programs are getting that real-world experience, and they are going to have a leg up on other people because of it.
2: Yeah, and you and I have both brought in folks from other cybersecurity educational, you know, Tracks. I would love to have a chance to work with someone from Pisces and, and kind of see what that experience has been like. Um, that that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, next, we have a blog from Coalfire. Actually, we have a couple in a row that are blogs from Coalfire. Uh, the first one is talked about the maximizing the value of threat modeling. Which is a super important uh, thing that we can be doing.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I go back and forth. threat. Mo- this is not about the article. Just my, my take on threat modeling. Threat modeling, I go back and forth. Like y- It can be too trendy, just like anything else. Right. It's, it's not it's not kind of any kind of a fix uh, for everything. But my goodness, if you don't know how bad guys might try and misuse your system, you're very unlikely to put controls and detections in the right place. Yeah. Hey, you got to At least when you're creating or when you get comfortable in a place, do threat modeling, figure out what bad guys might want to do and, you know, kind of snapshot point in time that you can go update later to help educate the rest of what you do around your program.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you're not getting super deep in threat modeling, the concepts of of what you're talking about, thinking about uh, how bad actors might interact with whatever it is that you're trying to threat model, right? Like that sort of thinking is helpful in making sure that you have the uh, correct defenses and yeah. you've thought about the things that could go wrong.
2: Yeah. To your to your point, like a guy like like me or you, who you know, not as technical, not in the code, we can get a lot of value out of understanding like high level what bad guys might do. Whereas I might have a, a appsec engineer on my team who's going to like get much more into saying, "Hey, this is this is an API in the system, and how can this API be misused?" Um, both of those are valuable. But my goodness, if you're not doing either of them. You're probably just blanket applying controls that may or may not be applicable to that system.
1: Yeah. Anyway, what so, is what is the article? So anyway, say? Um, the article talks about threat modeling, how to do it, uh, and how to do it well. Right. This is actually a very long blog post, uh, and it goes into a lot of detail about threat modeling and the best ways to do threat modeling and the values and things like that. So I don't know that we need to get into all of the details, but. Uh, I think it's definitely worth a read if you are interested in threat modeling. Well,
2: well, I wrote my own list of four key take four <laughs> key takeaways. Uh, number one, you, you wrote them. Well, I I read I read a list of the four oh, okay. key takeaways that was at the top of the article. Number one, list and evaluate all assets in the system. Okay. Number two, use threats to derive design requirements. That seems reasonable. Number three, create independent tests. For each threat scenario. Okay. Again, that sounds smart. And finally, implement detections based on the threats and tests.
1: Yeah. I, I might change detections to a different word. Like, could be preventions. Could or, be preventions, yeah. detections. Um, controls. Just controls. controls. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, fair anyway, point. Good hey, stuff. As you
2: mentioned, we actually had two stories from Coal Fire this month, which might be the first time we've ever done that. They, they actually had yeah. some other interesting
1: articles this month as well. Yeah, they had a, a large uh, swath of stories a this productive, month. A
2: productive, a productive month. month for yep. the Coal Fire, right? Exactly. Which might, maybe that means they're not productive doing <laughs> real work. I, I don't know. Um, anyway, this one is uh, Guardians of the IoT, Strengthening the Security of IoT-Connected Medical Devices in the Healthcare Industry. This article talks about kind of the unique... Um, IOT risks that exist for healthcare and what it is you should do as a security leader to try and address those things.
1: Yeah. Rob, I bet there's three key, key takeaways. What, what would you say? Those are Alex. Um, these are, these are much <laughs> longer. Yeah. You, you picked the longer. I, ones I to did. Read. I picked the wrong ones to read. Um, first that, uh, I think basically there's a lot of IOT in healthcare, right? Like every medical device is an IOT device and, uh, you, you know, you need to make sure that you are, uh, protecting and addressing those. Um, uh, not surprisingly, there are a lot of security challenges around those IoT devices. That's the second thing. Um, and then, you know, finally, you, you got to make sure that you are putting controls around those devices, and they may not be the uh, controls di- uh, directly with those devices, but it could be access control. It could be segmentation. It could be uh, updates, you know, other things like yeah. that to make sure that uh, that you're reducing the risk of, uh, of problems with those IoT devices. Yeah,
2: I, I think that one of the things we hear from our friends in the healthcare industry all the time is... They have this old equipment that still works great. Yeah. But you can't, you know, it's it's on, you know, NT four or whatever. Yeah. Like you just you just can't do anything to it. So the ability to 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 put controls, you know, you know, segmentation controls, detective controls, all things outside of the system itself is is a
1: big part of success there. Yeah. I mean if you have a, you know, multi hundred thousand to millions of dollar device right? You're, you're not going to put that on a normal technology refresh like a laptop. It's going to stay around for a lot longer and you're going to have to do some um, interesting and different things to make sure you keep it secure, which is exactly why they are so susceptible to ransomware attacks, and <laughs> and why we hear these
2: stories in the news about, yes. you know, hospitals being shut down because yes. they it's so hard for them to
1: secure. I, I do not envy our friends who have to run security at hospitals. I do not either. Healthcare is hard. Uh, speaking of adversaries. We next have a blog post from Red Canary talking about emulation. Uh, it's a great headline. Validating detection for Gootloader with Atomic Red Team.
2: Yeah, you know, I don't know anything about Gootloader uh, before reading this article. Um, I, I do know that the our, our friends at Red Canary do a fantastic job of, of identifying threat actors and and what I, what I love, and this is another example of, is I, I didn't know anything about it before reading this article, and now I walked out feeling like, you know, pretty comfortable that I, that I understand what's going on. You know, search engine optimization poisoning, compromised websites to, to, to get folks to to uh, um, download a malicious uh, archive. Um, basically, they're, they're, this is a way that they're trying to get in, and what do they do once they're in there? All of that's in the blog post, and if, if you're interested in also understanding this with, you know, maybe five minutes of reading, it's a good read.
1: Yes, this, uh, we usually get a couple different kind of Red Canary uh, blog posts on the show. This is those the kind that is the super long, deep technical one with all the details. So if you want all the details, they are there, and you should go check them out. Yeah.
2: I, I'll say the, the kind of thing that's in here is the stuff that your junior sock should read and learn how to think right. about
1: adversaries. All yeah. right, uh, final story. We have a uh, blog post from Zvillo about cyber insurance. Uh, tightening the reins to lower risk. Yeah, I, you know, cybersecurity insurance, excuse me, has been
2: a, a big topic for a decade now, probably. And I'd say over the last two or three years, we, we hear these horror stories of, you know, renewals where... Cyber insurance premiums, you know, triple, right, right. quadruple when folks go to go to do it. Um, you know, this talks about the the fact that cyber that insurance companies are realizing, you know, trying to insure company A and company B is not the same thing. I need to understand the risk of what I'm getting into, and this goes into ways that one can control those costs and be able to get the coverage you need.
1: Yeah, well, a couple of the interesting things I picked out of here because I've gone through some of the the renewal processes that have not been super fun to do. Um, they they talked about a couple of things that I hadn't heard of before. Um, well, actually, one that I have one was you know sometimes uh, as part of lowering the risk, the insurance company will require to you require you to use specific security vendors, right? Like we know that this vendor is good. We need you to use them for X Y Z whatever uh, product. Um, I have heard of that. You know, more often it's a A suite of a type type of these are the people we approve to do this as opposed to use this one. But the other one that I had never heard of was um, they said that they have seen some providers ask to install their own security appliances, not things that are managed by you in your network to make sure that they're managing that you're. Essentially, telling the truth, You're, you know, a double yeah. check on what's going on, and well, I hadn't heard of that one before.
2: I I have only heard of it as a theory, not as a someone actually requiring it. You know, when when I this year went through reassessing my auto insurance costs, and like every every insurance provider that I looked at who to save me money is like, oh well, if you install this device or you let us track you on your phone or whatever, you know, you'll we'll reduce your premiums, and you know, it's the really clear trade off of privacy versus money, right. and. Um, you know, I I said, no, thank you. Um, but I can imagine, you know, a corporate decision to make like, Hey, what, what's actually going to happen if this system's in our environment, you know, what are they going to, I I can see that it's actually a compelling question.
1: Yeah, it it is. Um, I don't know. I think it, it raises some, some interesting concerns and developments, um, if if someone else has a device on your network that is monitoring for security, well, but,
2: I've I've never heard
1: of a third party compromise impacting an enterprise. So I, I can't. That that's irony but, for those but, listening. There's at home. there's that part. There's also you know the depending on how well the tool is tuned and the effectiveness mm-hmm. of the alerts and other things like that. Whether they're getting value out of the data that they're getting. Um, yeah. I, I have heard of things like you know requiring certain bit site or other third party monitoring scores, which also you may say is not uh, worth the money that you would pay for something like that. But we
2: call that the internet mafia. Yes, exactly.
1: Anyway, so so it's a, it's a weird, wild, uh, landscape out there. And, uh, hopefully whatever you do, you can get your premiums down without having to sacrifice things.
2: All right. Well, that is it for stories. Like you mentioned, jumping over to events. Um, we have a calendar of events at Colorado dash security.com. And there's, you know, a good number of events coming up here in November. I think everyone's trying to get their stuff in before December. And definitely.
1: All right. Uh, for, uh, first off, we have a couple on November 8th. The Let's Talk Software Security Group is uh, doing a meetup on what's your biggest security challenge. And also ISSA Denver uh, is doing their November chapter meeting on asset management. On the 9th, we have
2: two events as well. We have the, the most important event of the month, which is yours truly moderating and hosting a debate webinar. So this is not an in-person event. We'd love to have you join us on a webinar where we're gonna have two different uh, security executives squaring off debating around the question, will more government regulation help you drive better security? The, the second event that day is in the evening, and uh, Douglas Brush and Dave Nevada, uh, Douglas who's, who's our guest here uh, on the interview this month, or, uh, is they're going to be talking about the new SEC reporting rule and the end of cybersecurity as we know it.
1: Yeah, I believe this is part of uh, the ISSA Denver Privacy SIG, so that's very exciting. Uh, On the 11th, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing their November mini seminar.
2: On the 14th, we have a couple more events. The the Cloud Security Alliance of Colorado is doing a security insights event with James Condon. James is a a great guy from the community and he's over at Lacework now. Uh, On the 14th, Colorado Springs ISSA has their November chapter meeting.
1: Uh, On the 15th, ISC Squared Pikes Peak is doing their November meeting.
2: And on the 16th, we have two more as well. There's the ISSA Denver inaugural Veterans Special Interest Group meeting. That's cool that they've created a SIG for for veterans. And also on that day, ISSA or say ISSA Denver is doing an SEC cybersecurity disclosure meeting. So yeah. if you go to the one next week and then the one the following
1: week, maybe you'll know everything. Maybe. Uh, since you've been doubling up, Rob, I'll take the last couple. On the 30th, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing a mentoring mixer and log wars. And then the final one actually bleeds over into December. The uh, Colorado Cybersecurity Group is doing their Cyber First Friday event. I believe that's down in Colorado that's Springs. Springs. Yep, you yeah. got it.
2: Uh, let's jump over into jobs. You know, we always look for about ten of our favorite jobs of the of the of the month. Uh, starting off with um, TikTok. If you have been uh, working on your TikTok dances and you're thinking, my goodness, I just need more TikTok in my life good news for you. Here in Denver, they're hiring a converged security technology
1: security specialist. All right. Um, Maximus (laughs) is looking for a VP of business information, VP, business information security officer. That's, I assume you can go by gladiator while you're there. Yes. Uh, Tanium,
2: which is a name I haven't thought of in a little while. Yeah. It's good to see them hiring. They're hiring a senior cloud cybersecurity engineer.
1: Sidebar, it's surprising to me ta- type that Tanium is still a uh, wholly owned company that they haven't been bought up by somebody. Yeah, seems like somebody yeah. that would be uh, purchased. Anyway, good point. Advanced Energy is looking for a manager of IT governance, risk, and compliance.
2: So I saw Advanced Energy on the job here, and then I was driving downtown past um, Union Station, and the, what used to be Antero's building says Advanced Energy. So I oh, wonder change their if name? Antero might be Advanced. This is like uh, okay. totally fact-free huh. speculation right now. But, when I, but I saw it twice in a row. Energy companies tend to change their names a lot, so they that do. would not surprise
1: me. That way they can get away from creditors. They, I'm making things up right now, once yeah. again, speculation. I, my speculation would be government regulation, but, you know, <laughs> same difference.
2: Uh, Western Union is hiring a cybersecurity
1: governance business manager. U.S. Bank, um, or Us Bank, if you like to pronounce it that way, is looking for a risk framework professional. DataVant is hiring a head of information security governance Kroll is looking for a vice president, policy writer, cyber risk.
2: Uh, Motive Care is hiring a senior IT governance analyst,
1: and finally, Meta is looking for a security partner for infrastructure.
2: I wonder the the changing of names. You know, Google added Alphabet. Google still goes by Google, but it's owned by Alphabet. And, right. You know, Facebook going by Meta, and that now you know Twitter changing their name to X. What is what's going on there? What's the trend? Uh, maybe they're trying to get her away from creditors. I don't know,
1: <laughs> or government regulation.
2: Who knows? Well, you can't be a monopoly if you can't if you, can't, if you don't know my name. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, that is it for the news. As I mentioned, though, we do have a feature interview, Douglas Brush, who is the um, founder, and uh, and and I think he's he, you know he's a uh, oh shoot expert he, witness as well. Yes. Um, at a cell. Um, a spell a cell partners a cell consulting a cell yeah. consulting
1: um, he's, he's also the the chief visionary officer
2: well there you go yeah I mean he, he's got vision for sure yes um, he's he sits down this month with our with our very good friend Frank victory um, Alex anything else before we call it a, a, an episode
1: uh, I think that's it uh, actually I do have one thing thank you to all of the people that came out to the volunteering yeah, event today uh, we had a great turnout got a lot of uh, canned goods and other things collected that we are going to be donating so thanks to, to everyone for that uh, we'll be doing something else in the future. Yeah,
2: we're looking at one coming up here in the winter for sure. So you know, be ready to sign up. We want you there. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Hi, this is David Stapleton, Chief Information Security Officer with CyberGRX. This is Colorado Equal Security for Colorado Security Professionals by Colorado Security Professionals.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening Colorado Equal Security. You've got Frank again for this as a guest host on this podcast. Today, my guest is going to be Doug Brush. And I'm going to have to take a really deep breath before I start introducing all of his job titles, because I think he's the only one here that has more jobs than I do. We've got Excel Consulting. He's also a fellow at the Academy of Court Appointed Neutrals. He's a cybersecurity advisor for Polaris corporate risk management and of course last but certainly not least he is the founder and host of cyber security interviews a podcast because he had about an extra hour a day which makes his sleeping hour time from what about from midnight to about 3 a.m every day so that way he can get all his jobs done doug how are you doing today I am doing wonderful,
3: Frank. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be uh, doing stuff with the Colorado equal security community and and Rob Rec, you know, and Alex Alex Wood, who's an amazing polymath, and he'll tell you that in person. but I will definitely see the throne and entitled to them as the best podcast in the Colorado area. i'll I'll take a very humble second.
0: Absolutely. I would have to agree with you. And as I posted in their in their chat, on their slack channel, I always want to be more like one and less like the other one.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's like when they, when when the kid when, when the kids ask you who which one do you love, most they say, well one of you and then you don't say anything else.
0: <laughs> oh, that of course is on purpose. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Doug, you have you're known within the Colorado Equal Security community as part of. You know, well, let's just say you're an icon. How, how about that? How how do you feel about me calling you an icon?
3: I I, I always get very uh, almost embarrassed at times when when I hear that. I've heard legend last week at the Colorado Equal Security picnic. I like troublemaker. Troublemaker is always good. But no, I, no, I've I've kind of heard I've, I've I've influenced people, and I think that has been one of the more humbling things. It's where it's hearing not necessarily for all the maybe uh, dumb things that come out of my mouth when I, I, I shoot first and ask questions later, basically don't ask any questions. I just say whatever comes to my mind. But when people say, Hey, you know, you really said some things that have influenced my career. you really helped me in different ways. I, I always find that very rewarding and a lot of reasons I get involved with the community. I came from a, a family that was very giving in their various communities, both in personally and professionally. So for me, it always was kind of a give to get mentality. You know, you kind of put things out there and they usually come back, in and, and bigger ways than you can ever imagine. So for me, it's it's always a big, big thing to co- contribute and help people as much as possible. And I try to encourage as many people in the community to do that as well.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's, again, that, that's very interesting. You know, I, myself, I teach at universities while I get paid there. The biggest thing that I think I get out of teaching is getting people started in their careers and again, giving back to the community. Uh, for those, of course, that also know me, I've been a board member of the Denver OWASP chapter for about seven, eight years now. And same thing, I have received, at least from a monetary standpoint, zero. You, As you know, there's a lot of things that we get. There's a lot of better things we get than just monetary compensation. Uh, what do you think those are? What Could you put that down to a single word? Why you should volunteer your time and give back to that community? Well, I, I think there's, you know, I think it's hard for one
3: word necessarily, but there's there's returns on investment of your time. As Warren Buffett said, you know, time's the most valuable thing. He said, you yeah, know, I can buy anything in the world, but I can't buy more time. And for you for, for any of us is if we can put that time into the community, but do it with the sense that, hey, what what will I get out of this? In, you know, as much as I say, hey, I do it for altruism, but smart altruism and smart capitalism, this idea that, hey, what what can I do to leverage things? Where's a many to one. And so even recently, what we've been doing with some folks in the community, particularly through Denver ISSA, uh, and working with helping them and some of their special interest groups, particularly around the critical infrastructure, you know, and why is that? Critical infrastructure has come under increased spotlight through the executive order, CISA, I would say to a certain degree, some of the new SEC rulings that overshadow some of the private companies that are publicly traded, that also provide public services in the forms of critical infrastructure. Eighty-five percent of those services in the United States are managed by private companies. So there's a lot of impetus now for the services that we all depend on—roads, schools, hospitals, uh, energy, and gas. You know, really everything to be safe, secure, and uh, you know, uh, usable in ways that's up top, that has the right amount of uptime. So in that effort of trying to work with private and public sector CISA. ISSA, look, I know in the end of the day, it's gonna give me opportunity to get in front of a lot of other thought leaders and potential customers. But the idea is to do something that also has meaning in the community that can help strengthen the community and build safety for people in Colorado. So to me, it's like, why wouldn't I do that if I can do all these things at one time? And I think that's, that's a real approach that more people have to take on this. It's, hey, look, I know you need to do these things for marketing and sales. But what can you do that is less marketing and less sales and more giving back that does allow you to build those connections? End of the day, most people in security leadership roles and executives that support security leaders are going to buy from people they know and trust. So if you build that trust by showing your you know, your, your knowledge, your domain of expertise within the community, they're more likely to buy from you and they're going to be more appreciative of what you do. So I think those types of approaches work much more effectively and efficiently and impactfully in your sales and marketing strategies. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations don't believe it. So we've been working with uh, some folks like Jasmina Filka, who's the chairperson of this group. So she can kind of go back to her company and say, look, you know, you've asked me to work with all these critical infrastructure companies. Here's how we did it. And it wasn't a huge spend, but it was time invested in my part to get in front of these people. Let's do this at scale. So for me too, it's also how do we influence the entire cybersecurity industry to do more of these things that's... Uh, getting involved with community, being more active and less of the spray and pray tactics of, hey, let's send out 6,000, 40,000 emails that we collect at RSA and hope we get a 3% return rate. I think that's not effective and efficient, annoys people, builds a lot of distrust of cybersecurity within individuals, within cybersecurity, outside cybersecurity. If you're doing things where you're kind of rolling up your sleeves, getting to work and helping organizations, okay, then, you sh- then you're showing true leadership skills and you're building a business uh, that is much more attractive to your customers. And so for me, that's that's kind of, they're Just they're, I can't see a downside of getting involved and helping out other people when you can do things that are effective and smart and within your domains of expertise.
0: How would you get started though? I should know by now, because I, I do know you at least a little bit, to never ask you a question where with a one word answer. I don't think that's no, possible.
3: I don't think it's possible. No, I, it's one, I think somebody <laughs> said, one of the reasons Colorado things, is there is there an off switch? I was like, no, poor, no? poor folks like Dan Aiella have to like mute me in conversations at that time. He's, he knows how to do it, but yeah, no, it's, it's tough. It's, I, I, uh, I, see, I think part of it too is I'm more like I'm already doing it. It's because of all my litigation work, uh, I, I work around too many attorneys and I speak the less in the room around attorneys. That should scare everybody that wants to get into legal.
0: Okay. So is that how you got into this academy of court-appointed neutrals?
3: Yeah, essentially. I'd been i started in my cybersecurity career, really, I would say as, as a role, uh, as a testifying expert in forensics and computer forensics and in litigation uh, in the early 2000s. At that time, I was doing a lot of network security work and other types of things, as, as far as more your, your traditional enterprise networking and support things, whatever they were, everything from the desktop to the enterprise back end. But certainly at that time, we were seeing more and more instances of network intrusions, malware, wireless issues that were still coming up. And we had to do things to kind of protect and secure them. And it really hadn't codified as a separate thing, but it was something I always wanted to do. I go back to my hacker roots as a kid in the 80s and 90s and, and really always wanting to get into the field. But... You know, lean more, I guess, on the light side of the force at that point. But really always wanting to to do more. And really, network security was something that I saw as a starting to get into cybersecurity. And you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's how it happened. I was I was doing a lot of work at that time for Merrill Lynch that very quickly disappeared. And when I came back from that, luckily enough, I got a phone call from somebody that needed a computer forensics investigation, which I was looking into and Got to do that, testify, and I really found it was exciting to do the intersection of law, technology, how things happen, what's defensible. And that led into a strong passion, I guess you would say, for how we, we look at the legal aspects of data privacy and data security. And that allowed me to start a company called the Digital Forensic Group, which was doing a lot of expert witness testimony, forensic investigations, and then some remediation and cyber work as well a little bit by our and eventually that all grew but i was always having that that part of the legal side to me even as my career went through in other areas as doing proactive stuff from penetration vulnerability management acting as a ciso building out security programs you know i always had an okay well how do you know what are the legal aspects of this how do we bring legal into this discussion and i continued to do the litigation work and sure enough i got a call in 2014 to do some of the special masterwork under courts in California, the Northern District of California, with some very large data privacy cases involving uh, Google Street View matter. While I can't get into details, you know, some of the stuff's public, uh, a lot of it's sealed. It was a really interesting experience to see how people from the outside think about technology, security and privacy when resolving disputes in the corporate arena around data privacy, you know, what's accessible, what's there, what's available, and I got to be able to mediate these issues. And that's continued. I've got to work on a a lot of these different cases where people will make claims under the different areas of law, but then have to support it with pieces of evidence that generally exists in large, complicated computer systems. So answering those questions of hey, what's there to be supportive evidence? How do we get it? How do we preserve it? How we do it that's legally defensible, manage the cost, meet the court timelines, becomes a very, very complicated, well, I shouldn't say complicated. I should say it's a very interesting way to take very complicated things down and make it very digestible and usable in a project management area. And so what we're trying to do now with that type of work, because we're seeing more and more data privacy and data breach litigation, is how do we support the judiciary in the various courts at the federal level, as well as state courts deal with the electronic data issues that come into play, because those will often be called into question of, hey, what type of data existed? Tell us a story about it. Was there reasonable security controls? What type of data is there? What's the value of the data? So being able to go out and get data from these systems, is not as easy as everybody thinks. You're not just Googling a enterprise computer environment. You have to go through very specific steps of data preservation, uh, collection, uh, and, and refining the process to take it out to meet all these things. And it's a much more expensive and complicated process if you do it wrong. And that's what we're trying to do is help everybody do this a little bit better and particularly the judges that are falling under the weight of these types of cases because more and more, and I guess now you would particularly say with the SEC and other types of regulations, there's just gonna be more litigation around data privacy and, and data breach and the courts aren't ready for
0: it. You think that we're heading in that direction? Cause I mean, traditionally, from a percentage, and, and I, of course I don't have any numbers, I'm taking a guess here. From a percentage standpoint, I don't think a lot of the crimes that are happening are actually brought to court. Some of it is because we don't know who the adversary is, maybe they're in a different country, or possibly it's not worth the time and the money because we're not going to gain anything back. Do you think we're going to get back into that era or get into the point where we're bringing actual – adversaries to court or other people? Who do you think we're gonna be bringing to court? Well, so here's here's the interesting
3: thing. It, it's a kind of a delicate area, both in society, ethically and, and legally and, and financially. It's often gonna be those that, that are quote unquote, the victims. The organizations that suffered the data breach will often be the ones that are exposed to litigation lawsuits. So while we not might not see a lot of criminal action, we're definitely gonna see continued lit- litigation action. And you know, talking about percentages specifically, I asked uh, some of the litigation or some of the data breach coaches. So these are folks that work under a lot of the cyber policies, the big ones, really all of them that cover most of the data security incidents that we hear about. And I worked for doing probably about 700 of those under different insurance companies, and which is a lot. That was just my office in Denver and the team that I ran here. There was we had, just in that company we had six other offices and there was at least ten other companies. So at scale, there's a lot of these data security incidents that are happening every day that we never hear about, never make the news. I don't have to publicly disclose them a lot of times. Sometimes they don't disclose to regulators, but when they notice they do the notification, often they bring on litigation. So plaintiffs will look at class action lawsuits against these organizations and say, well, hold on a second, you know, you were under a duty of care, you were supposed to. You know, have reasonable security controls around this, this data. Why didn't you? And often we're seeing these types of lawsuits filed for um, you know, hundreds of thousands of in, you know, impacted individuals that can go anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars to several million dollars. So the data breach litigations are, are increasing. And when I asked some of the folks in, in these areas that do the data breach coach work, so again, these are the ones that come in, help advise the companies on how to go through these things. They might not be in the litigation defense side, which is a a clear distinction, but they'll be in the, they'll be in the data breach protection side. And they'll say, Hey, you know, Doug, it's a great question. Three years ago, we had, you know, maybe 67 this one particular firm last year we had 300 this Mm -hmm. year. We expect 50% in 2023. And for that one data breach coach in their law firm, they do approximately 22, uh, 2200, let's say around 2000 data breach, responses a year. So if you think there's a thousand just in that one law firm, data breach litigations that are going to happen, that is a lot. And that's at scale. I mean, that's exponential scale. We've never seen anything like that. And more and more of that's happening. And I've been watching the different types of class actions being filed about both data breach and data privacy. And this is not going to go away. The expectation is greater that these organizations have to maintain some duty of care. There has to be these types of reasonable security controls. And with that, the organizations are, are kind of scrambling to figure out what that means. And so luckily there's some new standards coming out around that, but you know, the, right now the plaintiffs are, are being able to bring a lot of these lawsuits and, and, and cover them. Um, and then the, being paid for them, they're being covered by insurance. But if that insurance runs out or insurance denies those claims, companies are gonna be faced to self-insure and pay for these litigation costs. Whereas a typical breach response in your first party losses might be thirty dollars to $40,000 litigation costs can be in the millions. And so organizations are, are woefully unprepared for the incident response, litigation and regulatory aspects of this. And we're gonna see more regulatory enforcement that also has litigation. Just because you have a regulatory action from the FTC, the SEC does not mean plaintiffs can't come after you and vice versa. So okay. what organizations okay. are not ready for are this level of scrutiny for the data
0: loss. So we're not actually going after the adversaries that are destroying and attacking the data, we're going after the companies that fail to protect our data that we've entrusted to. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But I would
3: say in the nuance of that is, look, nobody's asking for them to have perfect security. And that's been a failing of cybersecurity for Mm -hmm. decades. We've said you need to have all these types of security controls. And if you don't, you fail one of them. You're liable, so as soon as you save things like liability and there's a lack of oversight from the governance from the organization, they're saying, Okay, let me explain this to me. If I do, if I spend a quarter million dollars just getting ready for some you know a framework certification, I go through three years of it costing millions of dollars, I get it, but I fail one control. My liabilities is, is equals If I do nothing, why would I do anything? Mm-hmm. We've tried to sell this idea of perfection, this idea that hey, you know. Doug, you're 47 years old. I want you to look like Hugh Jackman at 60 on the cover of Men's Health magazine. I want you to be all shredded and jacked. I'm like, dude, I'm never going to look like that. Oh, why do want I want to look right like right that? Now?
0: Now? I, I'm looking at you right now. I know our, our our people listening to the podcast can't see it, but I'm <laughs> shredded and jacked and, and everything.
3: I, but else. I'm not. I, but, but I say I've gotten in a lot better shape <laughs> over the past year. The reason why, though, is I started focusing on the metrics that matter. I had to get my blood pressure down. I had very high hypertension and because I'm a, you know, I have a family. I got worried about my health. I focused on the health that matters for me. And by proxy, I lost a lot of weight. I lost 35 pounds of fat. I put on about eight pounds of lean muscle because I was training differently. I wasn't training like I was in my twenties where I was trying to look like my little short Jack friends that go to the gym and had a different body type. They had a different set of genetics. They had a different day set of time in their day. You know, I started comparing myself externally instead of measuring the metrics that matter to my personal health. I want to see more of that in cybersecurity. I want to see better dad bod security, meaning that I want people to have achievable goals. I want them to go to the gym three days a week, not twice every day. Doing these small measurable things that matter and measuring the outcomes in ways that actually matter to cyber health is what we need to be doing. Those are the types of reasonable security controls we need to be doing. Focus on what matters, not everything. And this whole idea, but what if you miss one thing, who cares anymore? And that's been driven into management's head for so long by cybersecurity professionals that, oh yeah, but if you miss that one thing, okay, so how much is that gonna cost? So what's the, what's the ratio of the risk to the cost? And you ask cybersecurity people, like, well, that's not our problem. You just need to spend the money. And I get it. The business doesn't want to talk to cybersecurity people anymore, and particularly after the last year of, of you know, attrition and holding back of money, the spending is never going to go back there. That's over. Cybersecurity, as we know it, is over. And the boards and directors are going to seriously consider whether they're going to spend like this anymore because all they need now are the basics. They need good enough security around the data that matters that's at risk. And I once you do it from start- a data governance, it's different. I'm sorry,
0: Xavier? I said, I think you're going to start a trend right now with the dad bot security. I think that uh, <laughs> we're going to have to put that, I think you're going to have to put that on your tagline now. I'm going to try. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think but- it makes sense because it resonates with people. They're like, oh, okay, we're not going for perfection anymore. It's like, no, we just want you to be better and better health. If right now, most organizations that have blown out knees, they're way overweight. They're, they're, and they're looking at this idea of like, I'm never going to be this idea of perfection, so why would I bother? And I'm saying, let's bring it down to more achievable results. And I guarantee once people hit those basics, they'll be in better shape and they're going to continue to build on it. But let's start at goals that are achievable.
0: Okay. Well, let's go with, I mean, we've talked about what you're doing now. How did you get started in the computer industry? I, I heard about this awesome program called Google. Right? Is that what we call <laughs>
3: it. Yeah, I think I, I think I've always been wired like a computer. That's what. It, that's the secret. I'm I'm
0: really in am a robot
3: sent from the future.
0: Uh, that's why I admire you so much, Doug. I, I I think you're. I put you on that pedestal and call you that legend.
3: Sure, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I mean, I really got started. I, mean, I got started in the 80s and 90s breaking computers, breaking VCRs, t- tearing things apart, and getting to really t- have fun with them safely, which I encourage people to still do. Um, and although, although my dad, who used the computer for business, would not look at it that way because if you mess up the auto exec that file trying to load a sound driver and you probably did the IQ jumpers and, and then basically bricked a machine that he needed for work, he was not the type of person you wanted to hear god damn it douglas fix this i was like okay and i learned how to fix computers really quick uh, and, and and i learned how to back up at least the auto exit back files and, and remember what jumpers i set because uh, i had to get that computer up and running but i was always playing with them and it was always something i wanted to do and you know mm-hmm. i get out of high school and i, I was at the point in high school i was delivering pizzas and, and trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life but i was at the same time i started doing a lot of internships with with website designers they're like this is like before it's like netscape I think it was dot four, dot six. I mean, it's really early stuff. And, and, you know, at that point, I'm talking about computers in the local security community or local business community with my parents' business. Say this idea, this web, think this internet, it's going to change it. You can do all this thing. And people are like, whoa, 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 time out. We can't even turn our computers on, but we know we need to. It's like giving us better efficiencies. You know how to fix them. I'm like, yeah, I know how to fix them. That's what I always have to do. They're like, we'll, we'll pay you for that. I was like, oh. So I, that was the start of my business, supporting businesses and individuals, fixing computers and, and really helping out the Poughkeepsie community as a computer guy. And I had the business going and marketing and all this done and it really grew. And that's how I got into the enterprise side was through businesses I supported that then brought me into bigger businesses as a contractor and grow and grow and grow. So it really started there, but you know, it goes back to like, just having that mindset we're joking about it before even for podcasts, like the Google thing was, and you know, I, I, I sound like the old man yelling at the cloud, but you know, kids today don't get it. They don't get what it's like. How easy to spin up a BM and, and be able to do free online training in AWS. In our day, we had to go buy servers from junkyard, whatever whatever it was, and, and try to rebuild that, Dell R series servers.
0: Both ways,
3: and oh, gosh, yeah. in the you snow know. with with yeah, with a Dell R6 server on our back, and you know, <laughs> and, and and you know, total like uh, uh, SAS arrays on our front. But yeah, no, it's it was it was it was challenging, but you figured it out. But, you know, with all that was that that thing and you didn't have a lot of you had to learn how to fight one hand behind your back. And I was even learning to do all that area, that geographical support, because at that time, the Internet was not as resilient as it was. This was dial up. most companies and most people did not have dedicated internet service so i couldn't remote in to fix them i had to get in my car and go to people's places business to business to business to business and thankfully from doing pizza delivery for whatever you know year or so was it was i got to know the area in my map like the map in my head better than any any map book that was out there so when people would say hey we need to be we need you at this business at this time and this at the other I already had my geolocations built in my head because I knew every spot and every road and every back road in Poughkeepsie, and the Dutchess County area to go from one place to another.
0: So MapQuest really became out of Google, is what you're saying, or say they, they, Yeah, they plugged me into the matrix at night and downloaded my brain. Yeah, so that's you know that's one of the things we should do at the next Colorado Equal Security event is we should hold up a survey and say how many people know what autoexec.bat is or MapQuest or config.sys? We have that. And, oh, do you remember what Netscape was? And only if you answer all the questions correctly can you gain entry into the special room or something like that. (laughs) Okay, so you did mention something here uh, just about a minute or so ago. Why why, do you feel about clowns? I've heard that every time I see you, we should show you a clown because you love them or something like that?
3: Yeah, I love clowns so much. They're, I don't know what my, my parents, you know, they both passed away, but they still can't figure out the earliest, earliest days of why I'm scared of clowns. And I just don't like I know a lot of people don't. I mean, hell, they had Pennywise the clown is a terrifying creature for a reason. I don't think they had to even make him demonic. You can make him happy. Clowns are creepy by nature. Never liked them. And, you know, my friends, being like me and a lot of them attorneys too and wise asses I uh, had six or five litigators my, my first wedding uh, so you know I, I tend to surround myself with uh, people that like to to argue mess with you and have fun uh, he decided one time in our sharehouse in Long Island to one of them to dress up as a clown and follow me around now to get ready for that he could have just rented the clown so he'd put it on one night and stalked me from bar to bar messing with me. He actually went as far as the trouble to learn how to make balloon animals with stupid gloves on, which to this day, we don't know why he did that because he never made any balloon animals. And then that freaked me out one night. And of course, everybody was on the joke. I didn't think it was particularly funny. And I was freaked out. And finally, the next day, they kind of told me what's, up, what's going on. I was like, guys, idiots. And then the next day, somebody was like, well, okay, I'm gonna wear the clown suit out to the bar. I was like, dude, just fine. Just get away from me with that stupid thing on. And like an hour in, you know, being in Long Island and uh you know, let's say there's a lot of similarities between Long Island and Jersey Shore, you know, the kinds of meatheads. that you get there are three meatheads, grab my little buddy that's dressed up in a clown suit, so throws him over the railing of a bar, thinking, okay, well, it's a, it's a beach bar, he's gonna land on the fucking scene, right? Well, except for the fact you idiot, you threw him out of the bayside where there was rocks, and now he's cut up, he's got his head, these guys get tackled and arrested. There's a whole freak now, there's cops. There's an ambulance. My friend's covered in blood in a clown suit and then a neck brace and has to get, you know, taken off the island for emergency medical trauma. And I'm like, yeah, I did not like clowns before. This just made it a thousand times worse. So, yeah, to this day, if you really want to get me, you have to step up above that is really then give levels of trauma that I'm still dealing with um, that involve blood and, and guidos and you know, cover you know, clowns. It's so good luck on that one.
0: I, I Actually, I think what I'm going to do now is get a shirt printed up with the word clowns on it, and then the circle with a line through it just just for you, Doug. Just I do like that for you. Yeah, just just no clowns. I know a couple of people uh, that would probably agree with me right now. We we should make that a theme at the next uh, Doug event. There, oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> all right. Uh, so you moved here. You you did. You are not from Colorado. Tell me something besides Rob and Alex. What are the best things about Colorado?
3: Ah, oh, there's so much. Obviously, the Colorado security community. I, you know, and, and you know, all kidding aside, it's really been the security community has been wow. amazing. I came from New York, and even when you start dealing with the executive leadership in litigation, legal, the judiciary. CISOs, CIOs, CTOs, CEOs, anybody see anybody that has that level of, say, career advancement, they typically don't live in the New York City proper area. They have to commute. And so trying to get, hey, dinner, drinks, even lunches with them was challenging. Um, so it was very hard to build a community. I, I was very successful in doing that with uh, NY4SEC, so it was a New York City for Forensics group. We had hundreds of people involved with that that were local. And we, I had great speakers coming in regularly, but it was, it was a challenge. You know, whereas here, it's like I feel like we did the Colorado Schools security picnic a couple weeks ago, and you know, that happened on the fly, and there was a couple hundred people. That was awesome. It was it's just so much more accessibility to the community here. People don't have to rush off and commute two hours each way every day. And they don't feel crazy if they had to bring their family to it. We did family stuff with That was just never happening in New York. New York was just so kind of jaded, burnt out, fast-paced, and it was really hard to get to know people. Here it's been much easier. And I think that overall, the community, both personally and professionally, has been incredibly welcome. Um, And for me, I love snowboarding, so being able to go up to the mountains, And, you know, in a couple hours or even do a, you know, up at Eldora every Friday, we have the ski and board networking group. So it's a combination of work and play. I actually started that as a joke, just thinking, hey, here's a great way to expend some coffee and maybe a lunch if, if anybody shows up. Now there's several hundred people. It's a once-a-week thing. We have three other different organizers. Eldora markets it on their their website. I'm like, God, I just, this was a joke. Now it's another job. You know, we're trying That's all I do is I create new jobs for myself, even when I'm trying not to. But <laughs> you know, it's, it's being able to do that. It's just it's everybody does have a better sense of the work-life balance out here, which I know we all say, but they can also they really live it. It's not just saying and I I do, I do love that aspect of being able to be outdoors quite a bit and still have
0: a great work community. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because I'm a Colorado native, yet I don't like snowboarding or skiing. I actually don't like the winter for some weird reason. <laughs> I, I'm a summer guy. I I love going up to the mountains in the summer when it's nice. And to me, the hotter the better. Also, we got that too. But that's that's the beauty. That's what I
3: really you know. The summers in New York were often brutal. You know, they were that we had to go out to like three hours to go out to the beach just where it wasn't you know sweltering heat in the city. Uh, the winters. When I first came out here to even evaluate New York, evaluate Colorado versus New York, next wave my daughter out in Boulder, and we were hiking, 65, 70 degrees in February. New York had just gotten a snowstorm with seven foot snow banks, and people were like, "Why would you want to move out to Colorado? There's so much snow." I was like, "No, there's more snow in New York City. At least in Colorado, we get it in the mountains. <laughs> you know, and during the the summer, it's it's gorgeous. The lakes, you got so much more. And I think." Colorado, quite frankly, even if you go to the mountain towns are more of a, a summer place than anything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So back to, back to the security part here, all right? I'm going to ask a question for you, and I'm going to put a parameter around you. I'm going to say, in a thousand words or less, Doug, and I'm going to try to count this here, what do you think is the greatest security challenge today? All right? And, and again, please give me a remember a thousand words or less. <laughs> I'll see
3: that. This is easy. You just you gave me a softball. I can say in two words.
0: Okay. Data governance. Data governance. Okay. So what do you mean by that? I mean, obviously, there's I, I have my opinion as to what data governance means. What do you think it is? And do you think things like Sarbanes Oxley or any of the other regulations help us with that?
3: Yes. And a little backstory. Okay, so this is going to be the tough with a thousand words things, because now I got a backstory. I know half of my things end up sounding like a Quentin Tarantino movie, where four hours into it, you're like, oh, I get it. At the end, these guys already knew each other. And the, I know, I, I sometimes I bury the lead. I, I self admit that. But about a year ago, I realized I need to take a break. One of the other things that I do, as you know, is a lot of mental health advocacy, both in the community and mm-hmm. for other organizations. While I was at Splunk, I helped build out the neurodiversity a program with a strong focus on my area under the subset of that was mental health, mental health awareness. I had all the executives on an internal podcast talking about languishing and burnout. And we really did a great job at the different security events, such as DEFCON, Wild West Hacking Fest, Blue Team Con, to have safe space villages where people can go in and just chill out rooms. We had people come in and do yoga. We had presentations at DEF CON it was gosh, two years ago where you know guys like Dimitri McKay who worked with me as Splunk total just I will admit he's slightly better looking than me but he's shorter so well, we'll he, he averages out I talked about his challenges with neurodiversity and mental health that people wouldn't realize because it's not the type of things you see on the outside and I was going through a lot I'd gone through three deaths last year so a lot of the early mentors for me in technology and security were my mother and this other gentleman, Gavin Singh, who was basically my older brother. His mother was basically taking care of me when I was younger, when my parents were starting their consulting business. And after she got here, her husband passed away and brought these, these kids out of, you know, Guyanese Indians out of South America to live with us. And they all became our extended family. So my mother died in February. Dolly Singh, the mother, died in May. Gavin died in August boom 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 i lost my three biggest mentors and gavin was the one that taught me nt3.51 taught me how to wire ip access networks netbui net networks i mean with those and this was this was a god to me everybody passed away last year and i needed to actually practice what i preach and do some thoughtful introspection about how i was going to live the rest of my life and again at that time my blood pressure was up i was overweight i was depressed and i really had to focus on my mental health And physical health, it was was the same thing to me. So I did that. And around that time too, I'm stepping back and saying, okay, I left Splunk, good terms, but I was like, what do I really want to do? I really want to make a change. I want to live the next 40 years. And I highly recommend people read this book to help you figure out your next 40 years if you're in the late 40s called From Strength to Strength. And it really set my, my orientation to say, okay, well, what's the problem? I was like, I've been doing this now, security stuff, for so long. 20 something years, and it's like, why am I doing the same problems? Why is it the same problems? Why are we still patching SMBB1 issues? Why am I responding as an incident responder to SMBB1? Like, these are things that are well known. Out of those 700 data breaches I did, very few were sexy. Maybe mm-hmm. a handful, and I'll like, what the hell is the problem? Why? Are this is like the definition of insanity, you know? I should probably be saying that as a mental health advocate, but reality is, I keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting different outcomes. And I I sat there and you you can't well see there. Well, there's some of those manic scribblings on the walls behind me, but I said, okay, well, what's the problem? There's no duty of care. There's no, nobody ever gets in trouble for a data breach. And I looked deeper and deeper and I was like, no, that's not true. What about the CEO for Drizzly? I was like, go look at it. FTC gave him a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. It's basically a speeding ticket. It was a no contest. The CISO for Uber got in trouble, but it was like, a lot had to go down for that i don't think any of the other executives did there was no material impact to the business when there was a data breach so nobody oh, okay. protects business
0: so uh, an example here and I, and I call this one out to my university students uh, and especially for like the target breach i mean i think we we both know and everyone here hopefully knows about the target breach and they and i was telling my mom about how the ceo lost his job and she's like Oh, my God, what's the poor guy going to do now? But I think as as some of the people, if not all the people on this podcast know, he got his golden parachute for it, right? That's not even – I wouldn't even consider that a, a slap on the wrist. I mean – Not even – No, no. I mean because I had to explain to my mom who ever not anything about computers at all or businesses or anything else. She's the sweetest old lady, but <laughs> he doesn't know any of this stuff. And I said, well, mom, I'm not sure how he's going to survive on what the $50 million that they parted him with or whatever that, that price tag was. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. I mean, I, I I agree with you. Burnout is one of the issues from a practitioner level, and, and that you definitely cannot sit there and, and people are not being punished for these breaches. They're not going to jail. They're not suffering anything. And in fact, if I was the Target CEO, I, I'm pretty sure that I could survive on on what that twenty or again that what fifty million dollars a year or whatever he received. I, I I know it would be tough to make it work, but uh. that's the thing. Why do we treat you know?
3: There was the famous 2016 economist article that came out and you know, it said you know the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil but data. The data economy demands a new approach to antitrust rules and all this idea that. You know, data has this this intrinsic value. Does it? Because after 9-11, if you actually understand what happened, the insurance companies made sure that data had no value.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I guess there's a much longer conversation there, but you can like literally look up a lot of the work that Doug Laney out of Chicago has done, but he talks about it. He talks about doing data valuation, but the insurance companies helped spike the ball because these big organizations, like the ones I worked for, Merrill Lynch, lost all their data centers. And guess what? They were really doing the types of resiliency we plan on now as multiple data centers in multiple states or cities, because the one in the building next door got wiped out too, or the second floor. They lost all their data when they tried to get, you know, a litigation or try to get the coverage for it. You know, there's various areas of insurance coverages that said no, whether we act or war, and they just said, you know, at the end of the day, data is not, there's no value to that, Mm -hmm. and they won. And so people have had this idea that data has no value. But that's BS to me. I mean, we, we move past that. We can't continue to work. We, we are in a data-driven economy. And so there's right now, there's no process to hold officers and directors and officers accountable, liable, and responsible for any of the data loss that relates to money. So mm-hmm. one of the largest accounting scandals in, in history is not like off-balance sheet you know finances. It's off-balance sheet data. We treat data like it's some kind of magical thing that... Happens and then shows up on a 10k statement or a financial balance sheet, but there's it has some value. So, if organizations are able to put some value about how it's used and operated, they have to be held accountable when it's, it's stolen, and oh. you got to put the right types of protections around it. And that has to come from governance. And if you look at the new NIST CSF, it's about governance, SEC's rules governance. They don't want CISOs in the room talking about cybersecurity. They want the board members in there making business decisions about the protection of data. You're now in a state where data governance is the most important thing. And it's the only way we're going to change the situation to stop doing all these things that we've been doing for 20 years that are not working. It needs to end. Now, granted, I know there's a ton of vendors out there that are going to be upset that I'm saying this because of how are they going to have all these very expensive parties at RSA and Black Hat, you know, the drugs and all the sex that come with that might not be able to get <laughs> expenses anymore and Concor, They're going to actually have to pay for it out of their own pockets that they might not have jobs anymore because they're going to be looked at as vendors as how are you having material impact on the business? How are you protecting data? Why should I trust you? Not with the data, but with my money. Data mm-hmm. equals money until these organizations that sell to other organizations about data protection understand that that's the problem. They're not going to survive because that's what the board of directors want to hear is how are you going to help us protect data and keep us out of trouble? Because if we have a data breach and we suffer this and we have to report this to financial statements, we can get sued for, you know, a derivative lawsuits. We can have plaintiff action. We can have further regulatory action. I can get a Wells notice. You get a Wells notice, you might not be able to get another job going back to that thing about the CEO for Target, those are the types of things. CEOs, these executives, they do not care about making more money. They just don't wanna lose what they have. Threaten that, their behavior is gonna change. This is about behavioral economics more than anything else. You put those in the hot seat that matter, that actually control the money with fear of losing their money, they will change the way that they manage data and protect it better. And we won't have data laying all over the place. I think that's what's honestly gonna change the industry.
0: Yeah, and I think though that, and and again, uh, some people may hate me for saying this, I think that's very far away. I mean, and and here's the reason, and and I've got two questions for you that that I've been thinking about while you're talking. The first one is going to be, is when we talk about data and regulations, when like, for example, I was teaching a class at the local college here, when Sir Baines-Oxley really made it out to the uh, or, yeah. sorry, not, not Sir Bain's Ox, uh, Oxley, the G- GDPR made it out here to the yeah, yeah And they said, and I told them, isn't that great that they're they're finally doing that? And the the answer from the room surprised me because they said, it doesn't. Uh, it's not that great because you know what, my data's already out there, and that's where I kind of came up with this idea, or at least I presented it actually at one of our dinners at the Colorado Equal Security dinners that this regulation is only going to be effective for the people that are being born today, because now they have to protect their data, taking into those pieces what the college students told me. The second part I'd like to talk about here is when you mentioned the board directors and they're making those decisions, do you think, because I think that's one of the places where cybersecurity professionals struggle, that we want certain things to happen. We know the right thing to do, but the management, the board of directors, VPs, CISOs, uh, CEOs, et cetera, are making decisions that aren't within the best interest of security. Now, granted, they have to think about the business as a whole, but they also are not doing what's right for security. So which one of those do you think you want to address first? I'll do the latter easily. Okay. And that, that's the problem. It's us, it's not them.
3: We need to make this a business problem. Nobody cares about cybersecurity. And I know there's people clutching their pearls and in shock right now, but nobody does. We're never going to get the board of directors to care about security. Why should they? They care about business. And if I hear another person in this community say, well, it's the job of the CISO to talk about risk to the board. No kidding, guess what they do all day? We are like a bunch of little kids that now went into our first year of college, learned about Nietzsche and are at Thanksgiving dinner talking about existentialism and this God real? And it's like, dude, that's great, that's academic. We deal with risk every day. Welcome to the real world. And the issues are, we need to be talking about business. We need to be talking about reasonable risk controls, duty of care. We, nobody cares about security. We need to start at the top and that's where governance matters. And so when they talk about how they manage risk, all we need to do, it's very simple is align cybersecurity as a function under all the other risk areas of the business. Move the CISO under the CFO, the Risk Committee, or General Counsel. Build an office of a CISO that helps manage the cybersecurity risk separate from the IT and also separate from the data. So you have the data, which if you think about it, think about a can of beans, right? You have the beans inside that are the data. Then you have the can, which is the infrastructure. You need to look at the controls around both of them but they kind of work together. So how many beans are inside? Well, I need to know, are they the right beans? Are they quality? Are they poison or whatever it is? So there needs to be some governance around those but also the controls around the can. Now the expectation is yes, a certain amount of the cans are going to have failure rates and some of the beans inside are going to be spoiled. Again. Dad add security. Nobody's saying perfection. All we're saying is put around the reasonable security controls with the beans and make sure the beans inside are protected and separated between the type of assets that they are because there's not all data is the same. Not all data has the same kind of governance. So just by understanding how you need to protect the stuff that has value to the organization, what is the material impact by losing this, whether it be a compromise of the can or loss of the beans, How does that impact the business? And so we need to educate ourselves on how that's done. And this has been a fundamental problem. When I spoke on a CISO panel a couple months ago, I said, hey, how many of you here have seen a SIM dashboard? You know, 200 excited hands go up. I said, great. How many of you ever read a 10K? Maybe two hands went up. I don't even think it was the companies that they worked for 10K. Cybersecurity people do not understand that we need to align with the business, not the other way around. And that has been my uphill battle now for two years. And even this last year, when I said, We need a Sarbanes-Oxley for Mm. cybersecurity. The SEC is eventually going to, I said this a year ago, everybody said I was completely wrong. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I said there's going to be data governance for real. There's going to be looking at things for fiduciary responsibility, accounting and transparency of the data and systems, knowledge and literacy of the systems, a standard of care around, around the systems and data, and separation of duties. Those are the basic components of any kind of governance program. And that is what the SEC just said. They took the CISO out of the equation of requiring the CISO or somebody be a cybersecurity expert at the board level. And everybody's like, whoa, great. We lost that. I was like, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong way. Mm -hmm. The board. And the directors now are all personally culpable for understanding and knowing how cybersecurity works. So we've actually spread the risk to them and they're gonna focus on it very differently. And it's gonna be put in the business terms. It's going to align the the focus and priorities of how they do things and how they execute on their programs. And so instead of like a hundred different point solutions they're gonna pick a couple platforms that manage things good enough. And as long as it's legally defensible and somebody can go in and testify on it say, here are the steps that we took Here's the experts that we brought in that built out our data governance and our cyber resilience programs with duty of care. They're fine. And that's mm-hmm. all they're going to care about, but they're going to protect it. It's like in the 70s when banks were leaving money laying around because it didn't matter. You only had to hold back 10% of any cash deposit you put in. You can lend on that as much as you can in whatever banking pyramid scheme they have. But the physical assets, the money, didn't have value once it passed the teller. People were stealing it until they couldn't ensure those losses anymore. Same thing's gonna happen in cyber. Organizations that don't manage their data and don't protect it with reasonable security controls will not get insurance coverage. They will get sued, they will be held liable. That will be reflected on their balance sheets. And when that does, they're going to have to change their behavior. So unfortunately, this is gonna be way more than carrot and stick. It's just gonna be a massive kludge that's gonna force the behavior change, but it's gonna happen because of the money impact. And this is already starting to happen. The SEC is doing this. So this is not a data privacy rules that are in fact, take the word cybersecurity out of of that SEC ruling. It's about governance. In this CSF, it's about governance. We're talking about true top-down approaches to security, not the bottom-up that we've been doing. And I honestly think that's fundamentally going to change businesses over the next couple of years because of all the legal liabilities that are now introduced. Once Mm -hmm. people start suing each other for these things, we're going to have regulation by litigation, and there's going to be people in the courts that testify on this stuff that happen to be living in Colorado who have been wearing a tank top right now and talking about this. <clears throat> yes, I'm I'm being a bit of a war dog here, but hey, look, the reality is is that somebody's going to need to go and explain this in business and cyber terms.
0: I do agree with you, though, about the business. I've been touting that, and I think that's why you and I get along so well, is that <laughs> it, it is about the business, and I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here with that. It also – that business also includes the sales. I mean if cybersecurity makes it too difficult for the salespeople to sell stuff, then we have no income into the business, and that will detriment the company overall. Well, I mean companies are going to make better decisions due to
3: their supply chains of who they use for their risk management processes. And mm-hmm. that's going to fundamentally change the way vendors are brought on board. And that's everything from the contracting. You know, There's a lot of things under the Universal Common Code, like under UCC about software being a service and not a product, but there's gonna be huge liability standards here. You're not gonna have organizations signing with vendors any longer if they feel that, hey, if we have a breach that is material and we have a shareholder lawsuit. We have a regular. I'm gonna look down at my downstream to my third party vendors and say, what the hell happened? I bought you to help her. what type of what what is your software development lifecycle that allowed this type of issue to happen?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's going to it's gonna really force force. A cybersecurity company is to change the way they contract, design, develop, think about things. And it's going to have to align with the businesses they serve, not themselves and their ARR and all the things they have to do to boost up their, you know, the shareholders and VCs and the, you know, and the executives' stock prices. For once, product companies might actually have to think about the customers, which I know is a, is a new
0: concept for them. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's, you see, it, it, it's interesting what you're talking about here because when I was, with the company, and, I, and for I'll make sure I don't mention the company specifically, I was looking at their budget sheet for a project, and I saw a line item that kind of caught my eye. It was almost a million dollars, and it was reserved for fines because they knew they were not going to be compliant. And instead of trying to ruin their timelines to make themselves compliant, they decided the best course of action would be to just go ahead and pay the fines and then build it into the budget now. Well, I think that's, that's when you have to look at things
3: from, again, this, this kind of duty care center, the the big thing that came out of the SEC ruling was the materiality. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to report data security incidents that have material impact on the organization. Now I would say there's also going to be other aspects of this of beyond the data security instance, a breach or a breach of infrastructure can also have that. So when you start looking at the way that that aspect of it, that can an action, can a product that I purchase, can a decision we make about a product I purchase, and the actions I have, have a downstream impact on the business that impacts the stock price.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's going to be the thing that's going to be the kind of way that things are going to be framed is how do we make decisions now from a corporate governance thing that, has a duty to the shareholders. You know, that could be seen as gross negligent or or liable or any of the other kind of legal standards that get around that where various degrees of culpability go into it. But, you know, it's going to, again, put people in a different type of decision-making about the choices they make when they think, there's some real downstream consequences. Remember, we're not going to just get a slap on the wrist. We can't just put a fine aside. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can pay the fines. Yes, we can pay the legal fees. But if these things actually have material impact to the business and we didn't really think about this properly and we didn't disclose it because it's not part of our governance program because they have to do this year after year. This is not a point in time thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't just have to attest to this once; they have to do this annually. And then, if they do something annually and they make a attestation to something that says, "Hey, you know, we we've done the best we can, and we really think," and somebody says, "Well, hold on a second, you totally did not ask the right questions of this vendor. You totally didn't ask those questions of yourself. You didn't look at the data right." They're going to be, you know, there's possibilities again of regulatory action. There's going to be lawsuits. It's going to be a different world when you have regulation by litigation.
0: Okay. So let's go back to the previous, the other part of the question that I had asked you. Let's say that we get the governance in and we get the the penalties in and everything today. Let, let's just say that today, what, September 5th, 2023, everything that Doug wants to wants falls right into place in perfection. How effective, how many years or decades would it take for everything to be protected? And I'm coming from that from my college students when they were saying my data is already out there.
3: Yeah, and I'll say that there's a couple aspects of that. One, I, I, you know, I've been doing a little bit of a gloating glory dance since the 26th of July because I said this was happening, and it wasn't that. You know, I wanted to be right. I just saw this coming, and I don't think it was anything that was necessarily crystal ball. I just stepped back and looked at it more practically, in business sense, and in basics. You know, I said, "Well, maybe this is us. Cybersecurity is a problem. We're not thinking about the business. We keep pushing the square peg into a round hole." That cybersecurity, and I'm like, "No, what just happened is, is the SEC is going to round off the edges. They're not going to make it. You know, we don't. We're just going to make us the round peg, and we're going to go in the round hole. So we we have to start thinking about that. And so I think it's already happening. You know, and I, I don't think." It's, it's it's something that's going to take decades, if anything, it's going to take months. I mean, the self-reporting and the, the other aspects of this go into effect in middle of December, December 18th. And what that means is we do not have to protect everything. And mm-hmm. that is a fundamental mind shift within the data protection and cybersecurity community. They're like, yeah, but what if we miss something? I'm like, who cares? Nobody yeah. cares. What I care about are the things that are measurable. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, well, you can't manage risk in cybersecurity. I was like, well, not only, yes, you can. Actually, I'm like, treating the Doug Hubbard. Fair, I, I, got, I got a bunch of people already working on this. Why don't we just use the duty of care reasonable, you know, the DACRA standard? That's mm-hmm. the one that 20 AGs are looking at. That's the way the SEC is going to go. It is already happening. And the idea of that is we take prioritized risk decisions about the things that matter. And certain things are not going to get protected. Certain baby turtles are not making it across the highway. Big deal, but we need to move on. We can't protect everybody and everything. Yes, some of this data is out there, but the expectation is if there is a data breach and litigation or there's data privacy action, and there's something that says, hey, this data is out there because it has value. It's not just about the individual's data. It's about how we use it. And somebody else steals it and uses it. And there's other aspects about our intellectual property that are wrapped into individual ownership of data. Well, it changes things. What mm-hmm. I think will happen over years is that we see greater valuation of the data. Individual records within the database have different values that are tied to us. My crazy idea is that within four to five years, every individual has a level of data autonomy and ownership that we've never seen.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So yes, it'll be your data and anybody that uses it will probably have to license it from you. And so it'll be more of this crazy, communistic, you know, uh, capitalistic system Maybe closer to like a Nielsen rating thing, where hey, if you want to use my data, you're gonna to have to pay a small fee, and everybody wins in that sense. You know, more gonna be more likely to protect your rapid. All we're gonna do is you know monetize this in a way that that builds incentives to protect data. That will allow you to protect what matters, and more, less data will be laying around. So I think we're, we're starting to see some of this already happen. And I think with things like DACRA and assessing things that are legally defensible, because that's what the board cares about. Is hey, if I get sued on this or there's regulatory, how do I protect myself? They don't care about our data necessarily. Right? right? They care about protecting themselves. So let's start there. We can build out from there, but how do we protect them? How do we give them tools to protect themselves and think about things that are actually effective and, and reasonable. I'm not saying, but yeah, we can start putting better business processes around how data is managed. And let's look at things from a business function. How does, how does data move from customer impression, your first impression, whatever it is, how it's collected, a balance sheet. What are the business functions? With each and function, there's, you know, a swim lane of people processing technologies. What data lives in with this? Who has access to it? Now we're talking about basics, access controls, our back, you know, around things. Like we, we're going to use the tools that we have just in more effective and meaningful ways because we're tying it directly to the business functions. And then we can say, hey, we took reasonable steps around each process because this is a mission critical. This is a business critical. This is a tertiary thing. And we only have to protect what's what's really necessary to make sure we don't have losses to us or to the individuals that are has data get exposed it i, I think it's, it's going to happen a lot quicker than people realize
0: well i mean again I, I respectfully i think i'll disagree with you i mean you and i okay. think alike you and i think alike i mean one of the questions at the place i had asked is what if we could actually measure what reputational impact we would have in a breach now I know you and I could probably go on that question for about the next hour to three hours, but we've been going for almost- Yeah, I'll, I'll get one more, more thing. Okay. I already know people that are
3: working on that formula that are gonna bring it to court and testify on it.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll definitely wanna hear about the results. Uh, and I, we are completely out of time right now. So again, maybe we'll get you back on for another podcast or something, those lines. Uh, thank you for your time, Doug. Again, this is Doug Brush. You can find him on LinkedIn under Douglas Brush. My name is Frank Victory. I am a board member of the Denver chapter of OWASP. Please come and check us out at meetup.com forward slash Denver dash OWASP. Again, thank you for your time, Doug. And I will talk to you later, sir.
3: My pleasure. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you, Doug.